God places in this city this woman, Lydia, he brings her all the way from uh, Thyatira to Philippi so she might hear the gospel and Europe becomes center stage. And God places people all over the world in different places to make an impact for his son. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogi, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We've been looking at the seven churches listed in chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation. And today we move into verse 18 of chapter 2 and begin a look at the church at Thyatira. We've seen that although each of these first century churches has some unique characteristics, the message of all of them applies to the 21st century church. And with Thyatira, we'll see the importance God places on our behavior as Christians once we've truly believed. Let's join Dr. Brogy now as he begins a message entitled, Jesus or Jezebel. Revelation, it's really the conclusion to the Bible. It's not revelations, it's apocalypsis, it's singular in the New Testament. This is not the book of revelations that we're studying. This is the book of Revelation. It's an unveiling of Jesus Christ. And what is so amazing is that a book whose title is The Unveiling to uncover is a book that is very closed to a lot of people. I've told you that it is the least preached book in all of the New Testament. Many people are intimidated by it. And yet, it is one of those books that God tells us that if we will read it and study it and heed it, that we will be blessed by it. Now, there are many general exhortations that come from the blessing of studying and reading Scripture, but this is the only book in all of the Bible with a specific promise attached to the reading of this book. So we would do wise to heed it. Uh, now, let me just refresh your memory where we are in the book of Revelation. Revelation 1.19 is an outline of the Bible. God gave us a divine outline in the book. Therefore, write the things which you have seen. That's chapter 1. Uh, chapter 1 is a vision of the glorious, exalted, resurrected Christ. And he writes about that in chapter 1. The things which are, things that were true and happening in his day. That's chapters 2 and 3. Uh, as he writes to seven literal actual churches. And then the things that will take place, metatata, after these things. And so the first two words... Uh, in three in English, and chapter four is after these things, metatata. So those are the three major divisions. Here's the chart I've given you. The things past, chapter one, that's the Christ. It's all about Jesus. Chapters two and three, the things that are present. He gives us a picture of Christ in his church. And then the things future, the things Jesus will uh, bring about, the coming consummation. And we will walk all the way through the events that will lead us up to the second coming, his millennial reign, and the new heaven and the new earth. Now, chapter 1 and verse 20 is part of that vision. It's an, expl it's an explanation of what John had seen, but it also serves as kind of a transitional verse into chapters 2 and 3. So let me read Revelation 1.20 again. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. 
So we've discovered that these seven churches are literal churches that represent all churches in every generation. And so when you read Christ's assessment of all the churches, each one concludes with the same uh, final admonition. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In other words, the problems they face are problems that any church can face, maybe are facing or will face in the future. He is writing not just to one church, but to seven churches, and he wants all seven churches to read all seven letters. And by application, he wants us to read all seven letters. Because like with the other epistles in the New Testament, whether it's the epistle to the Romans or Corinthians or Galatians or Ephesians, it was not just for that church, but for all the churches. It's for the people of Community Bible Church. Now we've already studied that there is a, a pattern that runs through all of these churches. He begins with a characteristic description of himself, and then there's an evaluation. Uh, maybe something positive, maybe something negative, or both. And we've seen all three expressed. Uh, and, and then he concludes again with this statement, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what Jesus, the Lord of his church, says to the churches. Listen, it doesn't matter what you think of this church. It doesn't matter what the church growth people think of this church. In the end, all that matters is what the chief shepherd thinks of this church. And the church is made up of people with individual ears. And really, in any church, all seven churches are represented by the individuals. But typically, there's a composite characteristic that a church would best represent. Maybe it's Sardis or Philadelphia or Laodicea or whatever it might be. And so we come this morning to the fourth church as Jesus addresses the church in Thyatira. And you can see the title of this morning's message is Jesus or Jezebel. Let's begin by reading the longest address that Jesus gives to any of the churches. Revelation chapter 2 beginning now in verse 18. Follow along in your Bible. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze, says this, I know your deeds, I know your works, and your love, and faith, and service, and perseverance, and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads, she teaches and leads, my bondservants astray, so they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols." And I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them, I place no burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. He who overcomes, and he who keeps my deeds until the end, I will give authority over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces. 
as I also have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, when we come to our passage this morning, it really challenges us what it means to be a Christian. Not how to become a Christian, but what it means once you are saved and what are the implications of being a Christian. Now, throughout God's Word, He refers to His people as saints, Haggai, holy ones. You are a saint this morning if you've been born again. Because sainthood in the Bible is not determined by what you've done. It's determined by what God has called you, what He has credited to you. You have been justified, declared righteous if you are born again. And so whether you are the newest Christian or the oldest Christian, the most consistent or inconsistent, the most victorious or the most defeated, if you know Jesus, then you are a saint of God. But with this new position of sainthood, God calls us to a new practice. He wants our practice to match our position. The Apostle Paul, when he quotes the prophet Isaiah, hones on this truth. He writes in 2 Corinthians 6, 17, Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. Now, neither Paul nor Isaiah were teaching a life of asceticism when he says, come out and be separate. He's not calling us into a cloister of monks. God calls us to engage the world. He calls us to win the world, but not to be worldly. The problem is, is sometimes we touch things that we know we should not touch, or sometimes in our ignorance, like little children, we touch things that we should not touch. And so the question that God puts before his people as he addresses this church, in every church, and really not just here, but all the way through the New Testament, is how do you live in the world without being worldly? How far can you go, say, in accepting the world's fashions and standards and practices without becoming like them? Now, unfortunately, today, if you have standards, some will accuse you of being narrow-minded. But it's not always bad to be narrow-minded. Listen, if I go to my physician and I'm sick, I want him to be very narrow-minded over what kind of a prescription he gives me. And if I am sick spiritually, facing either a heaven or hell, because that is ultimately what we all will face, then I want to be very clear as God's spokesman, as God's doctor, as to what his prescription is to the way of salvation. And when it comes to your testimony, your lifestyle for Jesus, which is the focus and scope of this passage, I don't want to be polluted by the world such that I would give up my usability before the living God. Now, in many ways, Thyatira was really a wonderful church, but they had one tragic mistake. They were tolerating some things. They were putting up with some things that they should have put out, put out of the church. And of course, um, they may have thought that they were broadening their minds and being very open, when in reality, what they were doing is they were stretching their consciences. They were compromising. They were tolerating things that God says we are not to tolerate. So God has given us his word to give us wisdom to know how it is we should live. Paul, when he writes to the church at Rome, says, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's what we're doing this morning. That's why we come and we teach the Bible expositionally. 
because that's the only way you're going to grow and become the person that God wants you to become. We're not here to entertain. We're here to feed. We're here to shepherd the flock. Feed them my word. That's the way a pastor expresses his love to Jesus. The only way my mind, your mind, anyone's mind can be changed is with truth. And so don't be conformed. Don't let the world shape you into its mold but be transformed, metamorpho, we get our word metamorphosis from it. You know, the process that a, a butterfly goes through to become what he is. We are to be transformed through the renewing of our minds that we might prove, understand, test, experience that which is good, acceptable, and perfect, namely the will of God. And so that's what Jesus does for his church, and that's what he does for this church. Now, if you've read the passage, you can see it really divides into three parts, like many of these letters to the churches do. And he begins with what Christ distinguished about this church. That's how it starts, what Jesus distinguished about this church. Again, the traditional introduction is given here in verse 18, and to the angel of the church in Thyatira write. Now, if you've been with us in our study of the first three churches, then you know that there are two usages of the word angel in the Bible. It can be used of a literal, actual, real angel, or it can be used of a human, or it could be used of both. Um, and again, context determines everything. And we've seen that in this context that these are not seven literal angels that he is speaking to because angels never preach and teach the church. But as virtually all Bible scholars agree, these are seven angel pastors. So you're looking at Angel Carl this morning. He has called me to shepherd his church. I don't do it alone. There's a plurality of elders in every local assembly. But amongst that plurality, there is a leader amongst equals. And so he's addressing what today we would call in the 21st century the senior pastor. Now you can see here on the map, if you remember, that these seven churches follow this horseshoe type delivery, beginning with uh, Ephesus, number one, and ending with Laodicea, number seven. So we started with Ephesus, which is the formal church. I call it the formal church because it was doctrinally straight as an arrow. But unfortunately, they had left their first love. Then we went from Ephesus, 35 miles north of there, to Smyrna. That's the fearful church. So Jesus says, do not fear. Why were they fearful? Because they were being persecuted for living a righteous life. Then last time, if you were here, we traveled another 50 miles north of that to the church at Pergamum. They were the faltering church because they were compromising God's truth. They were twisting God's word. Today, we go 40 miles, basically almost diagonally across, but southeast uh, to the church at Thyatira, and I'm calling them the forbearing church. Forbearing, not in a positive way, but the negative usage of the word. They were tolerating false doctrine. There were godly people in the church who knew that there were certain teachings that were wrong, they didn't embrace them, but they tolerated them, though there were individuals in the church who followed those teachings. 
Now, I think it would be helpful to say just a few words about the city of Thyatira. Remember, it's in the province of Asia. Asia is not what we consider the continent of Asia today. It was one of the Roman provinces, and within the province of Asia, later it was called Asia Minor to distinguish it from the continent, are these seven churches. And we've seen there's a reason why he selected these seven, and we'll explore that further, especially when we come to the final church. Uh, Thyatira was originally called uh, Pelopia, Pelopia. But there was a general who ended up conquering this city. We actually studied this general, if you were with us in our series in the prophet Daniel. In Daniel chapter 8, the prophet, ever before it happened, predicted that there would be this leader who pictures Alexander the Great, who would conquer the world, establish the Grecian empire, and after his death, his empire would be divided into four sections. And one of those four sections was led by a general by the name of Seleucus. Well, when he conquers this city in 290 BC, back home, his daughter is being born. And his daughter's name is Thugatira. And so he renamed the city Thyatira. If I ask you how you came up with some of your children's names. I've heard some interesting stories over the years. One lady who named her child after a pain in the paint store. I mean, I've heard all kinds of things, but you know, if you conquer a city and you take it, I suppose you could name the city after your son or daughter that's being born. Now, if we could look at a more detailed map, uh, a topographical map, that you would see that this city, Thyatira, was on the border between Lydia and Mycia. It's located between two valleys. And so it becomes a very, very significant trade route, and it becomes a very important city. Now here's a picture of uh, one of many. There's a lot of ruins that are left in this particular city that you can explore and examine, and a lot of inscriptions that are written on the stones, and the stones tell a story. And if you read a lot of the inscriptions, you discover that there are all kinds of trade guilds in this uh, city, what today we might call a union. Sir William Ramsay, the great British archaeologist, said this of the city, more trade guilds are found in the city of Thyatira than any other Asian city. And as you read the inscriptions, you discover that there were wool workers, there were linen workers, there were makers of garments, there were people who made leather products. Um, but most importantly and most distinguished, this city was famous for its purple clothing. Now, if you lived in the first century and you wanted to wear a particular status symbol, you would wear something that was made out of purple. And if you go to this city, Thyatira today, even to this day on the outskirts of the city, you will find the matter root. And from the matter root, they made purple dye. They used that and they used uh, the murex. If you've ever seen a murex, it looks like a big conch shell. And out of the throat of the murex, they could get one drop of purple. And it would take a lot of these matter roots to produce the purple dye. And so it made it very, very expensive. And usually kings and those who were in royal positions would wear purple robes. And so Herod Antipas hated Jesus so much, he put a purple robe on his back at his own expense to mock him as a king. He put a purple robe on his back. And that's why, of course, 
the four soldiers gambled for that road. Now, if you remember, Ephesus was the Washington, D.C. of Asia Minor. It was the capital city, so to speak. Then we came to Smyrna. That was New York of Asia Minor. It was the commercial city. Then last time we were in Pergamum. That was a religious and healing city here in Asia Minor. Today we come to Thyatira. It was a city not known just in this province, but across the Roman world as the fashion center. It was the Paris of the day, so to speak. And again, especially known for their purple dyed clothing. Do you remember the Apostle Paul in the second missionary journey? He encountered a woman in a place called Philippi who was from the city. Her name was Lydia. Let me read to you from Acts 16, 14. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, meaning she was a Gentile who was converted to Judaism. This seller of purple fabrics was listening and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. Now, some have made Lydia a businesswoman and, you know, use it as a biblical basis for women jettisoning the home and going out. Look, we don't even know if she was married. But if she was married, no doubt, because she was a godly woman and understood the scriptures, she had a cottage industry of sorts, and she was very successful. And she's converted that day. She's the very first person to be converted in Europe. And her home becomes the headquarters for the Apostle Paul's mission there in Philippi. And then in turn, Europe becomes the headquarters for Christianity for the next thousand years Europe becomes center stage for taking the gospel to the world. Now, when you study these seven churches that are found here, you will discover that Thyatira is the least important from a first century perspective of all seven cities because it's a small little city. There's only about 30,000 people who live in it, and yet... It has the longest of the seven letters, though it would have been considered the least important place. Listen, there's a lot of small places in this world that are important to God. And you may be listening to me today and you are a pastor in some little crossroads community and there's only several hundred, maybe a few thousand people who live in your community. But what you are doing is no less important. And you may be serving in a church like that. Your church is not unimportant to God. God needs people in every place. And those same pastors who pastor a church of 150, if they were in a city like Atlanta with 6 million, they might be pastoring a church of 10,000. But God is not a respecter of persons. And God cares about his people wherever they are. And so God places in this city... This woman, Lydia, he brings her all the way from uh, Thyatira to Philippi so she might hear the gospel and Europe becomes center stage. And God places people all over the world in different places to make an impact for his son. Now, uh, with that said, let's see how the Lord deals with this church. We begin with the Lord distinguished his character to the church. He distinguished his character to this church. Again in verse 18, and to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze. Now remember the descriptions 
for six of the seven churches come right out of chapter 1. And a number of you have told me you took the challenge. You went back, you studied chapter 1, and you matched the verses next to the introduction in the church. And if you haven't done that, do that yet. There's one church that he does not draw from the vision of chapter 1, and we'll see that there's a reason for that. So he chooses seven titles, and he doesn't uh, obscurely choose the seven titles. He chooses a title of himself from the first chapter that fits the need of the city and the need of the church and where that church is in their spiritual growth. So if you remember, in chapter 1, he spoke of the seven stars. He uses that to describe Ephesus. He spoke of the first and the last, and we saw the significance of that as it relates to Smyrna. He spoke of the sharp sword that comes out of his mouth, and we saw the significance of that as it relates to Pergamum. And now to the church at Thyatira, he describes himself again from the first chapter, with eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet are like burnished bronze. If you haven't done it, write it out in the margin, Revelation 1, 14 and 15. That's where that comes from, Revelation 1, 14 and 15. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, John writes in the vision. This speaks of his gaze, that he is perceptive, that he is discerning. In Revelation 19 and verse 12, the Bible describes him in his second coming, his coming again with eyes that are aflame, eyes that are flaming. He sees everything. He sees the window of our hearts. Some of us wish we had a stained glass window this morning over it. But he sees right through us. And he knows everything about us, and yet he still loves us. But you cannot hide from Jesus. You can hide from your pastor. You can hide from your boss. You can hide from your friend. You can hide from your spouse. But you cannot hide from Jesus Christ. So we are not surprised in Acts chapter 1 and verse 24 that Jesus is called the uh, kardianosis. Kardia, we get our word cardia, heart. He's the gnosis. He is the one who knows the hearts. He knows the hearts of all men. And so Jesus sees what is in us today. His eyes picture very clearly his ability to discern. And by the way, what's so interesting is that in the vision of Revelation chapter 1, it matches the description of the Ancient of Days in Daniel chapter 7, and not by accident. The Ancient of Days, if you remember, was the descriptive metaphor that the Father uses of himself. And yet those same descriptive terms from Daniel 7 are applied to God the Son in Revelation 1 and throughout these two chapters as he pulls from that chapter. Why? Because to see him is to see the Father. He was deity in diapers at his incarnation. He was very God of very truly God and truly man. In his eyes, even before his resurrection body is given to him, are very descriptive in the Gospels. For instance, in Mark chapter 3, when the religious leaders want to see if he will heal a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath, Jesus with his eyes gazed at them and he saw their hardness of heart. With that piercing gaze, with eyes of fire, he saw what was true of them. In Mark chapter 10, with his eyes he sees the people with love and compassion. In the Sermon on the Mount, 
He tells us that the eye is a window of the body. You can tell a lot about a person's eyes. When the eye is clear, the soul is clean. When the soul is dirty, the eye is foggy. Jesus, in his resurrected body, with eyes of fire, sees everything. Jesus knows the hearts of men. He's able to look beyond the facade and penetrate to the innermost regions of our souls. Thus, as we'll see tomorrow, he knows our deeds, our love and faith and service. To listen again to today's message, Jesus or Jezebel, part of our study from the book of Revelation, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program REV7. And be sure to visit our newly designed website, searchthescriptures.org. There you can watch or listen to all of Pastor Brogy's messages, as well as listen to his call-in program, The Bible Line. Check it out. Again, that's searchthescriptures.org. Tomorrow we continue our look at the church at Thyatira. Join us then as we search the scriptures. <music>